you end up giving yourself too much importance when you think that the book is out there. What it's doing is really just another enzyme in the process. You know, it's one more catalyst that links up with what people were thinking anyway. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. On today's show, we're going to talk with someone who's been an inspiration for us for a really long time. In fact, he's the author of one of the most cited books of all time on this podcast. Way back in, I believe it was 2006, was it, Ian, that we read today's guest book? It was a long time ago, and it was a very hard book to get. I think you mentioned in the interview, like, we had to go to eBay. Yeah. The book's called Maverick, and it's the account of how today's guest, Ricardo Semler, turned his family's traditional manufacturing business into an experiment that showed the world what you can achieve in a business. And not only through the writing of the book Maverick, but by countless international delegations that came to visit Semco to see the innovations that Ricardo was putting into place. Some of those innovations, including allowing his employees to set their own salaries, hire their own bosses, and organize the factory floor the way they saw fit. Essentially democratizing the workplace, which all these new tech companies think that they're the first ones to do ever. (laughs) Ricardo was doing it years ago. And it was an inspiration to many entrepreneurs like me and you. Now the book is over 20 years old and out of print, but it's still being passed around like a secret, you know? The entrepreneurs in the community are handing this book around to each other and saying, this is a book where you can get inspiration. But as you'll hear in today's episode, Ricardo Semler doesn't really cling to his past achievements. In the intervening years, Ricardo has been involved in a broad range of projects to developing an innovative approach to education in schools he's helped found, to even helping to rethink the model for Brazilian towns. I think it's fair to say that Ricardo is an intensely philosophical person and a brilliant thinker, but he's also committed to taking these ideas to the ground where they can have effect on people's daily lives. We were so pleasantly surprised with this interview because, you know, you just don't know. You admire somebody from afar. We really love the book, but we found Ricardo to be every bit as engaging in person as he is on the pages. And I think for someone who's accomplished so much in his life, strikingly modest as well and down to earth. How did you feel after having spoken with Ricardo, Ian? Yeah, so much so that I feel like we opened up a little bit and we're like, what should we do? We don't know what to do. (laughs) (laughs) And he gave us some good advice. This week's show will be at tropicalmba.com forward slash Ricardo Semler. And we're going to link to some specific things there, Ian. If you're interested to see what Ricardo's up to now, check out Leadwise and Semco Digital, both of which we'll have links to in these show notes. And we'll also link to Ricardo's recent TED Talk, which is, I think, a great way to get up to speed with Ricardo's work if you're not familiar with Maverick. Thanks for doing this. Oh, my pleasure. So I guess, yeah, we'll ask the obvious question, Ricardo. 
why did you agree to talk to us on this podcast? I'm always looking for opportunities to understand how people are thinking and changing thinking. And so when you're always talking to the same people and you're looking for very similar comfort zones, you learn very little. So that's the reason behind it. And of course, I, I know what you're doing and I've been watching it for a while. So where are you, Ricardo? Because I'm seeing like all kinds of fascinating gizmos in the background. It's a recording studio at home, which also has kind of a video corner to it. But I live in the mountains about two hours from Sao Paulo in Brazil, and I'm at about 6,000 feet altitude. And so we have our five kids here, and they go to school nearby. And I go to big towns only rarely, maybe two, three times a month. I recently moved outside of the city as well. It's been a pretty seismic shift for me just in terms of the ways that I spend my days. And for you, what does it mean not living in the big city anymore? To us, and I guess to a lot of people who think about moving, and people have a romantic illusion of what it means to move outside and to finally be close to the earth and to your own time and to all the luxuries of silence and so forth. But it can be unnerving as well. And I think a lot of people find that the freedom to do whatever you want, whenever you want, is a much bigger responsibility to yourself than it seems at first sight. And so there's always a certain amount of anxiety involved with waking up in the morning on Sunday and then finding out that waking up on a Monday is identical to Sunday, right? You're not going anywhere and that you don't have traffic the next day and so forth. So it took us a while to understand that making your own choice about what you're going to do with that day is a pretty tough decision. It is not as easy or as romantic as it seemed. I don't know if you're having that experience as well. Yeah, a little bit. And I think it's when you're in charge of your own destiny and you're responsible for those decisions, it's always good, but it's always more pressure than you anticipate. On those lines, you know, Ian and I recently sold our business, our main source of income that we built for a decade, you know, with inspiration from the guys from 37 Signals and in part through you. And that's how we found ourselves on this call today. And I found myself over the last year, I feel dumb admitting this, but with like heightened anxiety, because I feel like I'm protecting things now. Like I've had a hard time just sort of letting go and enjoying it. I'm curious, did you go through that as you transitioned out of Semco? Yes, and, and for me, it was much further back, so I'm not sure how well I remember the emotions associated to it. But intellectually, it was really about realizing that you're, one, not as important as you thought you were. It's a tough one. Two, finding out that things go perfectly well or in, even if in a different direction without you. And three, that what you're left with is the option to do nothing, to do a little bit of everything, to tinker and so forth, and finding that that lasts for a while. And that whatever made you that entrepreneur in the beginning and made you anxious to make a mark in the world or to see how things work, that that returns to you the same way as you miss, let's say, a wife that you married for a given reason and had a certain passion and something, and then you've helped transform her into someone else. And then you start missing that person which you really wanted to marry in the beginning. And I think the business world is a bit like that as well. So that you'll probably gravitate back to whatever it was inside you that made you want to see things come out of nowhere and things become something that weren't there before. And I think you're going to find that doesn't go away. And probably some of that perpetual anxiety in the back of your mind or, or somewhere near your heart and stomach, that one it has to do with the fact that you were the person who during these 10 years built something out of nowhere and you cannot envisage spending another 40 or 50 years just twiddling your thumbs, you know? 
And for you, Ricardo, what does that mean, post your company? It seems like you might be working on some new ventures. Yeah, and I have, for example, the recording studio is a fun aspect of it because I've had a project which I've been interested in and working on over many years, which was to take the dying beauty of classical music and transform it into some format of music that people understand that it's contemporary. And so I've taken all of these harmonies and buildups of orchestral music down from the 19th century and so forth and tried to transform it into something. My success rate has been negligible. You know, I ended up generating something that sounds like Genesis or Yes, which the world does not need anymore. <laughs> and so I've slowly faded away from the recording studio. So I come a little bit here and there and I play around with it. But I realized that one, that's not my main talent and that this contribution is very much internal as a form of expression. So some of the projects that come my way or that I get interested in just because I read something in in the newspaper, I can't avoid. So what I'm doing nowadays is always looking for people who are willing to take this from me and do something with it, whatever it is. And so I have maybe an eight or nine different projects that are underway. A good part of it has to do with education. So I have these digital platforms where we're trying to transform schools entirely, and it's very disruptive and very new. But I've been looking for people who will take this and make something out of it without having to ask me to help all the time or without asking my opinion, even if it does move away a lot from what I had in mind in the beginning. So there may be seven or eight projects. There's even business projects which are underway because I like the idea of starting something with somebody. And I'm just trying to make sure that I don't do it myself. Were you aware that your book was being passed along like an illicit substance amongst these people. It was really happening for, there was this moment in 2005, 2006, where non-technical people with no means could build businesses on the internet. And there wasn't books for those people. And it was sort of like this book that you had to order on eBay and mine came with yellowed pages. And I don't know how many owners had it before me. This was the book that was being passed around. Were you aware that this was happening? No, I wasn't, but... You end up giving yourself too much importance when you think that the book is out there. What it's doing is really just another enzyme in the process. You know, it's one more catalyst that links up with what people were thinking anyway. You know, it just helps them to fortify a rationale. And so they were looking, they didn't want to set themselves up on the way, on the path of Alfred Sloan and General Motors and Jack Welch and so forth, because it's obviously obsolete. But it's important to realize that like this, there are other experiments of other people, other companies, and it helps to give you some aha moments where you say, ah, I'm not the only one that's thinking this. But I'm sure that there, none of these people have set up their business or their way of doing it based on the book. It's just that the book helped them to believe in the process that they themselves had designed in their minds, you know. I think that that's true in our case. You know, it was one of the tools that we used when we were setting up our company, specifically the way that we managed our company and the way that we treated our employees. I'm curious, it seems like you wrote that book for Fortune 500 executives, and the people in our community that adopted it are very much not Fortune 500 executives. They're running small businesses, they're traveling the world. We had what I'd call like a lifestyle business, so focused on a multitude of currencies, not just cash. And it kind of helped us to understand what our mission statement was. And so was it an unintended consequence that the book got into our hands or who was the intended reader for that book? It was obviously, and this happens with all all people who like writing, it was written for me. 
it didn't really matter one way or the other in the sense that wherever it ended up was the place where somebody was, as a magnet, was calling that set of thoughts to, you know? And I encounter a lot of people. It's an interesting thing as a writer here in Brazil specifically, where I meet up people who say, you know, your book changed my life, you know, that part. And then they cite a completely different author. <laughs> and so, you know, people have this mistaken notion that their books are very important, that they really change people's lives and so forth. And I did write it for myself in the sense that I was kind of jotting notes to myself, but also saying maybe somebody out there somewhere of any walk of life will find some use for this. And so I've had similar reactions from doctors from architects who have to set up cooperatives and so forth. It really is, it's all about sociology. It's really about how people work together in any kind of organization. But I am happy that it's fallen more outside the category of the, of the traditional executive, because I'm sure that the amount that is applicable to their reality is very small and could be a very disappointing feedback as well. One of the places your book ended up was at the bottom of a fire pit. What was that day like? What happened? I was reaching 50. I'm now 57. And I looked around at my five kids and I'd made an effort all along with them never to take them to the factory or to a place and say, you know, one day all of this will be yours. You know, I was scared of all the Shakespearean notions involved with people having to think that they're following in someone's footsteps, that they have a shadow to fulfill. And I thought that would be a terrible legacy for the kids. So my kids don't know what I do. Some of them think I'm a rioter. Some of them think I'm a rock musician. That's what I like them to think. <laughs> but the fact is that they really don't know what I do and I don't give them a hand. And so I was thinking, you know, for myself, maybe I needed the same thing, which was if I have these books in 30 languages, I have these things of myself, I have these images of myself or certificates, I'm going to be stuck to whatever I did in the past. And how can I start from scratch and not be encumbered by whatever happened in the past and make sure that I'm not living, let's say, a twilight of you know 20 years or 30 years of looking back and say, oh, I did this, I did that. When I was 50 exactly, Fernanda, my wife and I, we went outside and we put a big pit together and we fired it. And I took 100% of everything that I had about myself in the house and we threw it in the fire pit. So it was hundreds of books and dozens of languages and DVDs and videotapes and cassette tapes, you know, and paper and paper and paper and so on. And I threw that away so that there's nothing today in the house which reminds me of my past. You can't get rid of the internet or people's opinions anyway. So there's a lot of feedback anyhow. But the fact is that I then started asking myself, what do I want to do from now on, forgetting whatever I did in the past? And that helped me to start new things. I wrote a play which was produced. I'm thinking of a new book in a different direction. But I was also able to move much more with the whole school thing, which was kind of stuck with the idea that I was a business entrepreneur above all. I have to ask the follow-up question because you know, you're in some sense deleting your own history, but you invoke history a lot. You're obviously interested in it when you talked about the way you're setting up your schools, seeking ancient wisdom. One thing that stuck out like a sore thumb when I was researching you is that one of your influences is Foucault. It is one of many, and maybe I mentioned something which was specifically connected to Foucault, but it had to do with this issue of how do you redesign time every cycle. And today I'm reading, for example, a book by the Israeli called Harari, who wrote a book called Homo Deus. And Homo Deus is all about how 
We came from being Neanderthals and various strains of it, basically with three big things to worry about as humanity, which was hunger, plague, and war. And how essentially, even though at first sight it sounds kind of shocking, we've solved all three. And that the amount of war, plague, and famine that kills nowadays doesn't add up to the amount of people who kill themselves. Something has changed dramatically in us, and we're closer, if we look at the next 50, 80 years or something, we're much closer to formats of immortality. Either the very rich who can buy medical treatment, which will delay life completely. We have, there's a hospital here, a high-end hospital in Sao Paulo, and my partner is one of the directors there, and he says that 17 of the rooms have been occupied for more than 20 years by the same person. And so he says, if you deliver the person to me in a pre-terminal mode at the hospital, I can make sure that that person is immortal. They're going to spend 20, 30, 50 years in that hospital bed, and if you don't want to disconnect them, they will continue life. And this thought of Harari is to say, are we going to be able to upload our ways of thinking and use AI to develop a form of ourselves that will live forever in a form of software. It's a crazy situation. And Foucault, I think, handles this issue by trying to understand what time does to you. And so I guess my interest in him and philosophers who do that is how do you move away from the very materialistic measurements that we have and that everyone respects? And once you have it and you say, okay, well, we've done it, written the book, we've made the money, we're uh, now what are the really important things? And it doesn't come back to, oh, spend more time with the family, let's travel more and see the world, which is, let's say, an easy subset of the next cycle. And it really comes down in the end to this, I think Foucault wants to talk about constantly, which is what's immortal about what we're doing? Why is it important to us at all to leave a legacy or to leave a name behind and so forth? And you end up with this vacuum, which you guys are probably starting to deal with at a very early age, one in which I was still going crazy with two cell phones and, and answering everybody at the same time, you know? I can definitely feel the vacuum. <laughs> Ricardo, you referenced legacy. Dan and I don't have kids. Maybe one day we will. Is part of what having kids is all about is leaving a legacy in a way? I'm sure people will answer it from a biological standpoint. I'm sure it is. It's fun to see or to recognize traits of yourself in these very small people. But I think you also realize very soon after that they are a completely different set of circumstances and they take paths which are always very unnerving to you because you find out soon enough that you can't control it. They're negotiating with you at two. You know, they're good negotiators as of two. And so you find out that a lot of the things that you thought you were going to extend through your kids you're not really able to do because they don't follow really either your instructions or your way of life. They just abide by it for as long as they have to as children. And then they go in a different path which you control no longer. You know, So it's, a, it's an enormous joy. It's a wonderful experience. It's not represented as a legacy. And so if you leave a book, a video program, a tropical MBA, you're probably better off than trying to do this through the DNA of your kids. 
you had a company, I assume you made a little bit of money doing that. And today it seems to me that the world is getting cheaper. For $50,000 a year, you can live like kings and queens couldn't live thousands of years ago. Air travel, the internet, it's also cheap now. And so I wonder if you could do it again, would you focus on your passion projects or would you focus on building a massive company, having an exit, getting some money and then being able to afford these passion projects? Would you live your life in reverse, I guess? I guess because I was always concerned with living as I went along, making sure that I wasn't accumulating to then start my life. It wasn't dramatic, but I certainly put in a heck of a lot more hours than I should have or I would today if I had a choice in making certain things happen. I think I did have these financial models in my head. My father was an immigrant. My mother was a refugee, not only from the war, but then refugee from Mao Zedong's China in 1949, actually spent 18 months in a refugee camp in France and so forth. So these are people who came with a lot of fear about what can happen to you when you lose everything. And in both cases, they lost everything in Vienna, and then they rebuilt it in Shanghai, and then they lost everything in Shanghai. There was this in the back of my mind, I think, which had to do with building value and exiting it to someone and so forth. But I also found that as I did this over the years, it kind of never was enough. This is a difficult one because I had done some math for Forbes at one point, which they had asked me for, and I'd written one saying that I thought at the point at which all millionaires become the same was $12 million. And this was the number we got to at the time by putting together a house in town, a house in the mountains, a house on the beach, a certain amount of cars going to Europe all the time and so forth. And the conclusion was $12 million will do it. My personal math has always been a very simple one, which I think came around the time of my father already, way back, which was take whatever you need to spend and multiply it by 20. If you have that number, you'll be okay. And it's an interesting way of doing it because instead of saying, boy, wouldn't it be great to sell the company for $100 million, the question is $100 million this or $20 million that, what do you do with that? And as you say, it's not all necessary. And I started doing the other way around, which was, what does it cost me? to live the way I like. Do I want a helicopter? No. Do I want a boat? No. Do I want, okay, so that's not too bad. Now, let's take whatever number that is per year and just multiply it by 20. And if you keep doing that, you'll always be okay. So I've never had a real desire to go much above the 20 times whatever I spent. I'm also not very good at reducing what I spent, so that keeps me going for a little while there as well. But the answer to that is yes, you're definitely right in the sense that it, it doesn't take very much. And if you're not connected to status symbols, it takes even less. It's very easy to live a very fruitful life with much less and even do things, as you say, in quantity with very little amount of money. And I think that when people say, I'm going to build, I'm going to sell, I'm going to exit and so forth, I think that they're essentially being goaded consistently by the one out of 100 guys who became a unicorn or became a small micro unicorn. And people talk to each other in that respect. They say, oh, he sold the company for a billion, that's a hundred million that. And so it's in people's mind as a measurement of success. And of course, you've realized early enough that it's by no means a sign of success at all. And no matter how many movies you see or series in which the tycoon gets screwed in the end or screws up his personal life, et cetera, it does not filter down to us how irrelevant it is to make money after a certain step in which it's enough for you to go. And I think that a lot of people could easily do with $30,000 a year, $50,000 a year in the country and be perfectly all right. But I don't think that that process is there. And Trump's not going to help that at all either. 
One of the things you mentioned is asking the three whys. You know, if you ask why three times, you'll sort of get to the core of it. And one of the things I was thinking of when you were talking about making money and entrepreneurs really resonate with your message, what do you think is an appropriate why for a successful entrepreneur? We all seem to share something in common, which is like, we've done these businesses and once we've had a mediocre of success, we've sort of run off and done all this other stuff that doesn't resemble business at all. I guess it makes me wonder, are we doing the right thing by starting with business? I think business is just another good place to start. And if your thing is really seeing something flower out of a place where there was nothing before, I think you're set. I always remember the joke of the Canadian guy hiring people who were big tree cutters and so forth. And he needs to cut a whole area, a swath of land there. And he asks everyone where they cut. And they say, I cut here, I cut there and so forth. Another guy comes up and he says, so where have you been before? He said, the Sahara Desert. I said, Sahara Desert? There are no trees there. He said, not now, not anymore. (laughs) So it's a little bit the same thing. You know, if you start with a desert where you're going to develop a flower, which happens to be a business, when you take it later to another passion or to another walk of life, it is the same will and the same wish to see a desert that was there and suddenly see a flower coming from it. And so if you take it to school, you take it to community work, you take it to anything else, starting this entrepreneurial verve in a business is perfectly natural. And it's a good solution as a starting point. But as you say, now you say, oh, and I've made 2.3 million. Do I want to go back and just be a serial entrepreneur and start another one, another one with the risk involved? Most people will say, she's, you know, this was, I was lucky to a certain extent. I learned quickly with the mistakes and so forth. But now I've got this situation. I've got this money. Do I really want to throw it all back in and start again? You know, I have this entrepreneurial bug in me so that I'm now, for example, at this point, I'm investing in four completely new businesses that have no particular track to them. There's no way of knowing what they could become or not, etc. And I'm very comfortable with it because this entrepreneurial format is fine. But I'm also working on a small town here where we're trying to create a reference town which takes some of the concepts that came from that business life and we're taking it into life in community. And when I look out and I see these eco-villages and reference towns, etc., I realize that what we're lacking is something that I'm trying to build up here, which is how do you coexist, how do you cohabit next door to people who are extremely diverse as compared to you? How do you make people coexist with people who work for them and make a hundred times less? When you look again, because of my mother, I think about these refugee camps. When you see these refugee camps in Europe or anywhere else, what you see is that after a certain point in time, they say, well, you guys are Syrians, you're here and so forth. So here, let me teach you German. Let me teach you how to be Catholic. Let me teach you all of these things, which is really a, a tremendous disrespect to their background, to the reason they're there, to the culture that they've had for hundreds of generations, which you just wipe clean by saying, sure, we can coexist as long as you become a nice little German, a nice little Dane. So we're trying to exercise here the thought, you know, if we take Brazilians who make our minimum wage, which is eight times less than a U.S. minimum wage, and these people can barely survive. Can you put them next door to yourself and have a very similar format of house just with much less square footage, with much less luxury to it? But can you coexist without walls between you? Can we make security and education and so forth a common issue? 
how do we deal with real diversity? Can we have people with completely different religions where each people minds their own business and isn't trying to make the whole community think alike and so forth? So this is, I think, a bit a long-winded answer to your question of taking something that comes from a business scenario, which doesn't necessarily come from success because we say, oh, you know, we had the cycle and in business I did very well and so everything's fine. But the fact is that the amount of businesses that we started which went bust is enormous. You know, there's at least 15 or 20 companies that I started that went absolutely nowhere and was completely wrong about how soon the world was going to be interested or ready for this or that product or service. And so this idea first that I now did it, now the business side is, okay, let me go do something else, doesn't correlate. It's just that thankfully it turned out to be in the black instead of the red as a net difference. You know, the same way as any great baseball player, the amount of times that he struck out is never registered, must be a horrible number. <laughs> the same thing here happened. So then, yeah, it was positive. But I think taking it to new areas like education or like a village like this is one example of the same entrepreneurial bug, which makes you want to see something where there wasn't something else there before or where you're constantly bugged by the idea that there's so many silly ways of doing things out there, which could maybe be corrected if you put your finger in it, you know? Yeah, I feel like in some ways, just to share an anecdote, you know, I feel like part of the reason we sold our business was because of that narrative of like, it's sort of something that successful entrepreneurs do is you exit your business. When I first started the business, it was like, I had nothing to lose. I was completely fearless. We would just do anything. And this past year, I felt so the opposite. And I wonder, you guys were speaking about ego quite a bit. And I wonder how much of that is like needing to align with that success narrative. Like now I'm unwilling to strike out because I just got on base. Did you ever experience that? Or did you always feel the sense of freedom just to go out and try things and screw up? I always tried and screwed up in proportion to the conservative aspect, which says, I'm still all right and nobody's going to say I became a failure, you know, because your track record in the end, it has a very different proportion depending on how recent it was. So let's say you have a 50 year career, but you go broke in the last two years, the other 48 years go down the drain. You know, there's very little you can do to save the idea of you say, well, you know, true, I don't have my house anymore and my wife left and my kids don't want to talk to me, but in 1976, I did, you know, it doesn't help. So you're stuck with your most recent accomplishments as being almost the sum of whatever your life was. It's a horrible weight to carry. So yes, you do become more conservative. I become more conservative. And people, of course, will always tell you, oh, you know, for example, my son that's 17, he's very much a left oriented. So he's a bit of a socialist. He was never interested in money. He doesn't want a car. He's had a credit card for years. He doesn't buy anything and so forth. And so people say, oh, you know, that's at 17, you have to be a communist. By 25, you have to be a this. And, you know, by 45, you have to be saying hi, old Trump, you know. But the fact is that it's not a necessary transition at all. But I do think, yes, you become conservative in the sense that you don't want to lose your self-image by walking into a restaurant and somebody nudging someone else and saying, Dan, you know, they sold that company, but now he lost it all and so forth. Because you are now just a new, a neo-loser, you know. 
Ricardo, I wanted to ask you one final question. You've got all these passion projects going on. You've invested in the four companies that you mentioned. It seems like you've got a couple other entrepreneurs that you're working with, or maybe they're not even entrepreneurs. They're just running these projects that you're interested in, the town and such. What is the commonality between these people and why do you find yourself attracted to them and wanting to spend your time with them? I think what's common to everyone that takes on these projects, and I'm thinking whether it's an age factor, I don't think so. I can think now of examples of very different ages. I think it is people who are willing to commit to something that they're not scared of, even if I were, you know, along the lines of what Dan was saying, that even if I wouldn't at all like the idea of losing whatever was invested or the opportunity and so forth, it is people who are willing to take the risks that I would have taken many years ago, whether they're that age or not. And people who have their own drive and their own way of thinking, they value themselves so highly that they will not follow my instructions. You know, they won't follow my concept and my idea. Because I think the scariest part is saying, well, Ricardo, we're doing this, but we understood that this is what you want. And that's the scariest moment of all. So it's someone who says, I heard you. I understand what you said. I didn't do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm doing something else entirely. And I'll say, tell me about it two, three times a year. And because they're not following what I'm doing, I will never know what my project would have resulted in. But I'm always exchanging this for the freedom of waking up and saying, I'm not going to go to that meeting. I'm not going to follow up for that person. And hopefully, statistically, a good part of this will work out. And if it doesn't, I'm hedging my bets in the sense that none of these alone could take me down. And so I'm left with my remaining ego of businessman, you know? One of the shifts that's happening in our society is I know you've taught at some of the most prestigious business schools in the world, but some of those very same kids are getting a freelance gig on the internet. They're moving to a community somewhere in the world where they can, you know, be around like minds and they're listening to podcasts like this and they're reading books and they're gathering together and they're building businesses. What do you think is important for those young people to keep in mind as they start their careers in this new business environment? I think it's to realize that because the older businesses and ways of doing things are becoming obsolete, they are at the point The technology they're using today, the ability to work on a platform, to work from home, to be a digital nomad, et cetera, is ironically enough, when they look back in the future to this, they are working with the least amount of technology and the most medieval forms of everything that they will have for the rest of their life at this moment. It's a very interesting perspective because we look at it and we say, I can do this immediately, I can do that and so forth, but nothing will become as obsolete and laughable as that what we're doing today when we look at it again in 10 or 20 years time. And I think people can easily get excited by the possibilities, but if they're not looking forward 10 or 20 years to AI, to new ways of looking at ourselves, the changes that biology will bring, I think that they'll end up just finding themselves in cycles where five years, 10 years, 15 years hence, people will look back and say, you did a part of that. Remember that old platform thing when you used Slack and Basecamp, ha, 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 you know? I would say that the main thing to pay attention to is that although this looks terribly nifty at this point and new, it is the most obsolete thing you will do for the rest of your life. I think it's an interesting way to look at it. I'm curious to see how you two are thinking of avoiding a bit this entrepreneurial bug, how you're able to use your time, as you say, you know, if you're tinkering in a garage, 
whether you guys think you're going to be able to do this for a long time or whether you think there'll be a fallback and that at a certain point in time, uh, wife and kids and budgets will slowly start entering your framework and what do you think you will do with that once it happens? I think we're wrestling with that every day right now. I mean, we talk about the need to build you know, wealth on the one hand, but I'm not so sure we could build a business if the primary aim was wealth. Because I don't think either of us are opportunists. We're not good at deal making and profit and taking an asset and moving it over here and getting money out of it. So at least historically, we've been people that have tinkered around and built things. And so I think we're kind of kicking the can around a little bit right now, asking ourselves, like, what's going to get us motivated so it's kind of been a strange, I felt like it's been a strange year, Ian, I don't know, because normally we've just been so on it. And this year it's been like Ian's racing cars and I'm riding my bike around and we're kind of trying to figure out who we are as entrepreneurs, I think. Yeah, I think the one thing that's happened since we've sold our business is I've turned more internal in a lot of ways. Like I've focused on my internal hobbies, like racing cars, bought a house that I'm rebuilding. And so everything is kind of internal. And when I think about the success that we've had in the past, it's always been external. It's been building other things for people that have either wanted to consume them or participate in them. And so I think at some point we will get back to building for other people. But right now I'm very interested in, in some of the self-exploration. I think it's a very selfish endeavor. Honestly, I'm not sure if it's going to lead to any great realizations, except for I would probably prefer to create for other people and not so much for myself, because I get a lot of satisfaction from people buying our products and people being a member of our community and people listening to this podcast and, and sharing these ideas much more so than I did building this house. Of course, it's fun, but it's almost like purchasing something and three days later, it kind of wears off. Whereas I think for me, this podcast and talking with entrepreneurs like you and having this be out into the world, you know, for as long as it's out there is much more giving, you know, we'll get emails and people will come up to us at our conference and they'll say, you know, you really changed my life. And that feels good, but I mostly feel good for them. You can't live off of that. That's a dangerous game to play. <laughs> I feel good for them because creating for yourself seems selfish, if that makes sense in a way. It does as a superficial thought, but it's not in fact. The same way here, if I'm at the recording studio and I'm taking a piece of Mendelssohn and I'm trying to make it into a contemporary song, it's never going to go anywhere. There's no chance that this is going to become a viral CD. <laughs> Suddenly I'm going to have all this satisfaction for having done this. It is absolutely internal. It's not ego-oriented because it's never going to be recognized because I don't have enough talent anyway to do it. So it's something where I am doing it for myself in the sense that I'm spoiling myself. And when I'm spoiling myself, or when you are by tinkering with a car or rebuilding a part of the house, you're also doing something which is absolutely essential for you. And you are not a social animal that is available just as long as you can help third parties, you know, doing things that are entirely for yourself, that are monastic in some respects, you know, as you said, oh, I went off to Tibet and I'm sitting on a mountain now for seven months looking out into the horizon. People will not say, oh, you know, what a selfish guy. He's in Tibet when there's all these problems here in Seattle. But the fact is that what you need to do for yourself, according to apparently our biological constraints and our internal philosophies we have, is an absolute constraint that you have to follow as well. You're not able to only work for things that are visible or for things that do good to someone else. And so you need to forgive yourself every time you're doing something long that's sabbatical-like post-sabbatical. I'll be watching what you guys are doing. Thanks, Ricardo. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much for your time. Take care, guys. 
you'd like to check out everything that Ricardo's up to right now, we've linked to his current businesses, Leadwise and Semco Digital, at this URL, tropicalmba.com slash Ricardo Semler. And if you're on your phone, you can actually just click the screen and you can see those links and the show notes right on your phone. And really briefly, I'd like to thank Gabby Wallace from Go Natural English. If you recall, she's been on this show before talking about her YouTube marketing strategies. We reached out to her for this episode to do some research in Portuguese for us because she lives in Brazil and speaks Portuguese fluently. She's like a language guru. And that was pretty cool that she helped us out. And she checked out some articles for us written about Ricardo because he's something of, I think it would be fair to say, like, if you're not familiar with Ricardo, he's like what Richard Branson is to the UK, Ricardo is to Brazil. You say that's fair? I can't read Portuguese, but that's the feeling that I got. After this conversation, I've thought about it a lot. I don't have any like specific conclusions, but Ricardo's the kind of guy I think that gets people thinking. And it was a real pleasure to speak with him. You know, sometimes when you meet people that you admire, you can be disappointed. And I don't think we were disappointed at all. It was a real pleasure to talk to Ricardo Semler. Yeah. And thank you so much for being on the show. And for me, you know, the idea of just being able to lose so much ego, that story of throwing all the books in the fire at 50 years old, and then kind of starting your life going forward, like you don't have to lose all of the knowledge and information that you've gained. But to not be carried on by who you were in the past, I think that that seems super powerful to me. Very cool. We'd like to hear what you think. You can let us know at tropicalmba.com slash Ricardo Semler. And we'll be back with another one next Thursday morning. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning. 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.